would say to get started. <clears throat> okay. It's Christmas time. We think a lot this time of year about making things. Maybe making special treats, sweets that you don't get to eat the rest of the year, making gift bags and gift baskets, making presents to share with loved ones and friends. Um, sometimes in my household, I make ornaments, Christmas ornaments for my children. Um, so one year I made them all these little little uh, trains to hang on the tree, locomotives if you want to be technical about it. And uh, because the best thing to give someone is something that you love. And, uh, so, and yes, that is a Clemson Tiger hanging on the tree beside that locomotive. And then one year I made, my, my grandfather used to make these deer out of pine trees. He would cut down a, a little pine tree about this big around, and then he would make a deer out of the parts and branches, and, and, and his were big, you know, three, four feet tall. And so uh, one year I made each of the kids a, a little a little deer to hang on the tree. And um, yeah, that's what we do at Christmas time. We make things. I was surprised this week. I wasn't expecting what I found as I studied the scripture for today. Mark's gospel, chapter one, he describes the baptism of Jesus. And the more I studied it, the more I realized, hey, the baptism of Jesus shows us that Jesus came to make overcomers. Overcomers, that's a word you hear several times in the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. Some translations use the word conquerors. Jesus came to make us overcomers. He came to make people who are afraid and weary and tempted to give up again and again overcomers, that we would be so captivated with who he is that we would keep on faithfully persevering even though we're afraid and even though we're worn out and even though we're tempted to give up. He came to make us that kind of people. He came to make us people who fully understand our own weaknesses. And yet there's something we see in him that so captures our hearts that, that we would willingly surrender to him in order to find a kind of strength that we know we do not have. That's what the Bible means when it talks about people who are overcomers. Jesus came to make stuff. He came to make us overcomers. Let's look at Jesus together and let him shape us to be that kind of person. So we're going to hear now as uh, Stacy Dombrowski reads for us the scripture for today describing the baptism of Jesus from Mark's gospel. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me take a moment and pray for us. Lord Jesus, what we're about to do, um, well, maybe it's really stupid. Our hearts will tell us that, that you aren't there, that these are empty words. Our hearts will tell us that what we're doing now is pointless or that it's arrogant. Who are we to think that we could understand you and understand the scriptures? Our hearts might tell us all those lies. Your spirit is telling us that what we're doing is powerful, that what we're doing has the ability to transform us, to transform our relationships, to transform the whole world. Help us to listen to your spirit today. We pray in your name. Amen. Everybody's gotten one at some point, right? It's that gift that, well, when you open it, you're like, it wasn't really a surprise because I sort of knew this was coming. I was expecting it. You walk through the hallway just casually saying, I could use some new socks. And so when you get that squishy package, it's not really a surprise when you open it and out pops a few pairs of socks. Once when uh, Tricia and I were in seminary living in an an apartment and doing our laundry at the apartment uh, laundry facilities, we needed a bigger laundry basket, something that wouldn't fall apart like the other one had. And so when Tricia looks under the tree and sees this box this big, that's very light, and when you thump it, it makes this hollow sound, well, there's not much of a surprise there. And so I had to tell her something. It's a pony. There's a horse inside the box. I don't know. Why did I say that? Well, there's got to be something surprising. So one night I... um, I slipped in, I, I cut a slit in the paper, I opened the bottom of the box, and I, and I shoved in a little purple hippopotamus. They were fresh out of stuffed horses and ponies at the places I could afford to shop. And so, when Trisha opened it up, she was expecting the laundry basket, and she found it, but also the surprise, the purple hippo. Mark's gospel is doing that for us. We read about Jesus' baptism. Yeah, I was kind of expecting that. You know, Luke's gospel describes Jesus' baptism, and and so does Matthew's gospel. And and even the gospel of John, the first thing it describes is interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist. So I was kind of expecting this. I mean, I'm familiar enough with with Christianity to know that, yeah, Jesus got baptized and And the whole dove coming down, Holy Spirit thing, and the whole voice from heaven, you're my son, been there, done that, kind of expecting that. What I want us to see this morning is that Mark opened up the bottom of the box and he slipped in a couple purple hippos. Some real surprises going on here, just in these three little verses. Things so good and so glorious that that they're intended to leave us standing wide-eyed, and open-mouthed with our hearts captivated by the wonder of what we are seeing. Let's see that together. The first thing we'll see is that Jesus came to captivate us with the wonder of his humility. 
the humility of the mightier one. When, when we listened last week, David Fisk uh, preached about the earlier commentary on, by John the Baptist on who Jesus is. And John described Jesus as the mightier one. Listen to what John the Baptist said about Jesus, verses 7 and 8 of Mark chapter 1. John said, After me comes one who is mightier than I am, the strap of his sandals. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie them. If I knelt down on the ground before him, that wouldn't be low enough to show you how much mightier he is than I am. I have baptized you with water, John said, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what John the Baptist had to say about Jesus. And so what are we expecting when Jesus shows up on the scene? We're expecting the mightier one. But listen to what we actually get. Verse 9, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Wait a minute. Where's the mightier one? John said, I'm not worthy to so much as untie this guy's shoelaces. And Jesus says, I want you to baptize me. What kind of humility does it take? After a great prophet like John the Baptist has said, this guy's going to make me look like a peon, to then approach that prophet and say, I know I could baptize you with the Holy Spirit right here and now, but instead, I want you to baptize me just like you've been baptizing so many other people. What kind of humility does it take for Jesus to do that? The humility of the mightier one Jesus also shows humility as the sinless one. Again, from the text that David introduced us to last week, verse 5 said this, All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John the Baptist, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. Now, wait a minute. That sounds very similar to verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. If you look at those two sentences in Greek, the similarity between them pops off the page even more uh, boldly. So we're meant to compare these two. But notice what's missing. At the end of verse 5, Mark has told us that, that Jesus, that uh, all, all these people are coming out to be baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. And listen again to verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Jesus doesn't confess his sins. Why not? If you were sinless... If you had no sins to confess, would you adopt a posture that makes you look just like all the other sinners who have been confessing their sin? If you didn't do it, 
Would you stand alongside your brothers and sisters and let yourself be fussed at as though you had done it? When your team at work blows it on a big project and you had nothing to do with the failure, do you stand in the corner putting your hand up going, "Mm, I did my part, it was them. What kind of humility does it take for Jesus who has no sins to confess to still take the posture of repentance? Why is he acting like someone who's repenting when he doesn't need to repent? You'll see in your worship guide uh, a quote from one of my favorite teachers. He's a man named Hans Beyer saying around my house, God loves you and Hans has a great plan for your life. Um, Hans is a man originally from Germany, now an American citizen and um, one of my seminary professors and then I had the privilege of being able to teach alongside him later. And he defines repentance in terms of, in terms of self-sufficiency and autonomy. Like sin is standing before God and saying, I am enough. I don't need you. Self-sufficiency and autonomy. The best thing for me is to be independent from anything that has to do with you. So God, if you're over here, I'm going over there. And repentance is just the opposite of that. Repentance Repentance is saying, I surrender my self-sufficiency. I surrender autonomy. Now, Jesus has never acted like somebody who didn't need his father. Jesus has never acted like somebody who wanted to be independent of the Holy Spirit. This is why the father can say, as the Holy Spirit descends on him, You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. You have never needed to surrender to me because you were rebellious against me. And yet Jesus takes this posture that says, Father, I always want to surrender to you. I don't ever want to choose my own path independent of you. I don't ever want to go someplace without you. I don't ever want to go the opposite of the direction that you're leading me. I want everyone to know that I surrender to you. And Father, I surrender for them. Your people have not surrendered to you. And when they do, even their repentance is incomplete. So I surrender to you on their behalf. Father, I surrender to you for them. Do you see the humility of Jesus willing to take our weakness on himself, willing to stand in our place, to look like one of us, to look like someone who is a sinner who needs to repent, even though he doesn't? And he's willing to to put his perfect submission to the Father, his perfect following of the Holy Spirit in the place of our flawed lives. My friend Hans Beyer describes humility this way. Humility is courageous surrender to confidence. Not in ourselves, not self-sufficient, 
courage. Not, not courage because of who we are, not courage because of what we have to offer. Courageous surrender to confidence in the purpose and the power and the wisdom of God. Jesus is modeling that. He is accomplishing that in his baptism when the mightier one, the sinless one, comes and he stands in our place and he says, John, I'm way more powerful than you. People, I'm way more sinless and perfect than you, but I want to stand in a posture of surrender and humility. Jesus came to capture your heart. with a humility that you could not have dreamed of if you had tried. He came to give you courage to be an overcomer by captivating your heart with his courageous surrender. I didn't expect to see all that this week. I did. Saw this too. Jesus came to captivate us with the wonder of his generosity. Jesus is baptized, and something happens that never happened before. John's been baptizing people left and right. Right? Listen to the way that um, Mark describes it. Again, back in verse 5 all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem, all kinds of people, everybody was going out to be baptized by John, and they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, and they confessed their sins. And Mark doesn't tell us anything extraordinary happening after that. And they went to get baptized, and they got wet. That's what happened. But when he describes Jesus' baptism, Jesus came. He was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately something incredible happened. He saw the heavens opening and the Holy Spirit descending on him, coming down out of heaven like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That never happened before. Jesus is the only one who could rightfully say the Holy Spirit belongs to me. The Holy Spirit and I are in perfect harmony. I I perfectly embody the life-giving power that comes from God's Holy Spirit. Nobody other than Jesus could ever say that. This never happened to anyone besides Jesus. If Jesus wanted to stand up and say, the Spirit is mine and I'm keeping him to myself, He could, but instead what we see is this generosity. He's the only one uniquely qualified to experience the full life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. And yet, verse 8 says, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Here's this incredible, powerful gift. It belongs to me and me alone. Get your bloody stinking hands off of it. It's mine. You ever hear that on a Christmas day, right? Day of love and peace and harmony and family and don't you touch my new bicycle. That's mine. Don't touch it. 
You see the spirit of generosity in Jesus? The spirit is mine, but I can't wait to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I can't wait to give away this great gift so that other people can share the life that the Spirit has to give. I can't wait for you to experience the power of the Holy Spirit the way that I have, Jesus says. Jesus says, I can't wait for you to know what it's like to be so closely united to the Father through the Spirit. I have so enjoyed that for eternity. Now I'm enjoying it as a flesh and blood man here at my baptism I'll enjoy that through the rest of my life. I can't wait for you to experience that. Jesus has this great gift, and what he can't wait to do is to share it. Okay, great. It's pointing forward to something else, though. Jesus is generous in the way he shares the Spirit. His generosity is also going to extend to sharing the blessings of what the New Testament calls the New Jerusalem. That will take us to a passage in Revelation chapter 21, which describes the people of God after God has finished perfecting his love for his good world at the return of Jesus, describes the people of God as the new Jerusalem. What's amazing to me, what I saw this week is, is, um, well, how that description is so much like this one. Here you read about Jesus being baptized. Water is involved. Water symbolizing how the Holy Spirit refreshes weary people, gives life and renews dry ground. The water of baptism, water of life. We read about the heavens opening and the Spirit coming down, showing that the distance between God and humanity is being closed and bridged. And we hear this pronouncement, you are my beloved son. It's all pointing forward to what's going to happen in the end. Revelation 21, John the apostle says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And then verse 2 says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. There are not many places in the Bible where you read about something coming down out of the heavens. Jesus' baptism is one of those places. This text is another. I saw the New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. When Jesus gets baptized and the Holy Spirit descends on him, Jesus is planting a flag in the ground and saying, I am going to stay here and do whatever it takes to wipe away every tear from your eye." Today is just the first step in something that won't be finished until I come back again in the end. But right now today, I am telling you, I will not stop doing whatever it takes so that you can share with me in this kind of life where there are no more tears ever. In this kind of life where there is no more death ever again. And no mourning and no crying and no pain. Because all that old stuff has passed away 
And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new, renewing things as the water of baptism renews. Where's the connection with water? Don't make it up, preacher. Show me it's in the Bible. It is. It's in verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And then verse 7 promises, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, will have this heritage, this inheritance, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Jesus is planting a flag in the ground on the day of his baptism, and he is kneeling before John, even though he is mightier than John. And he is letting water be put upon him to show I will not stop doing whatever it takes so that one day you too can hear the Father say, you are my child. Jesus says, today it's my day to hear that. The heavens open, the Spirit comes down, and I hear the voice of the Father say, you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased, but I will not stop until in the end. Everything evil is gone away for good. And everyone who surrenders to me will hear the Father say, With you, I am well pleased. Jesus came to captivate us, to capture our hearts with a kind of humility and a kind of love and a kind of generosity that we couldn't imagine if we tried. Why does that matter? How does that make us overcomers? It shows us that Jesus came to lead us from fear to surrender. There are a couple of elections coming up, if you haven't heard. Senators from Georgia being elected. Not about to tell you who to vote for. I am going to tell you to keep your eyes and ears open for two kinds of ads. There's the kind of ad that generally we call an attack ad. And, and the attack ad is trying to make you afraid. It's trying to play on your fear. It's trying to say to you that um, there's something really awful coming and you better surrender your vote to this candidate or that or be afraid. And then there's another kind of ad. I haven't seen or heard many of these that try to capture your heart with a vision of something good. It was that same way in the first century for the first people reading the Gospel of Mark, the first people reading the book of Revelation. They're both written to groups of people who were experiencing pressure and persecution from the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was constantly running attack ads, constantly saying, I want your whole world to be governed by fear. The goal is to intimidate you. The gospel of Caesar was all about intimidation because intimidated people give in to fear. And the gospel of Jesus is not like that. The Gospel of Mark showing us the baptism of Jesus is saying 
Do you want to live in a world that's governed by intimidation and fear? Or do you want to live in a world where your heart can be captivated by something glorious and beautiful? Because captivated people don't give in to fear. Captivated people overcome fear. Intimidated people give up. Captivated people surrender. And there's a huge difference. And the beauty of the gospel is saying to us, Jesus didn't come so that we could live in a world that's dominated by fear. First century world, Rome wanted to pressure you to make Jesus your secondary God. Hey, we're cool with Christianity as long as we're clear that the emperor is the real God, the first God, and Jesus is just your second God. And if you'll say that, we're good with you. And if you won't say that, well, you better be very afraid of our power to make life miserable for you if you don't surrender to us. Be very afraid of what we can take away from you. Be very afraid that we will uh, take away your job. Your employment prospects in Rome are going to dry up if Jesus is your first God, not your second God. Be very afraid that you might be arrested. Be very afraid that you might be killed. Be very afraid that at the very least, you're going to be totally out of step with your culture and everybody's going to look at you kind of sideways. Be very afraid. It's the, it's the way a bad boss motivates you to make work a God. You better give in to every time I ask you to do more work than is humanly reasonable because you better be afraid of what I can take away from you if you don't. I am the most powerful thing in your world, and you better know that. Once you walk through that door, I am your God. It's the way that money becomes an idol in our hearts. Money says to us, I am the most powerful thing in your world. If you get more of me, you're going to have more happiness. Less of me, hmm, you better be very afraid of how miserable your life will become if you don't treat me as your God. Now, I know Jesus is one of your gods too, and, 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 and he, can, he can talk about money all he wants. But money's going to say, I'm the real God, the number one God. It's the way anything becomes an idol. Romance, sex, they aren't the same. Social media, happiness, politics, they all lie to us and say, you better do whatever it takes to get more of me, even if it means less of Jesus in your life. And you better be very afraid of what will happen if you put Jesus ahead of me. Nobody wants to live like that. Nobody wants to live life constantly intimidated into giving up. So Jesus comes and he doesn't ask us to be afraid. Jesus comes and he leads us into surrender. He says, look how courageously I have surrendered myself for you. Look how I take your weaknesses onto myself when you surrender to me. I don't use them against you. I take them away. Why wouldn't you want to surrender everything to me? Look at all that I will share with you if you will surrender to me. It's not a threat of what he will take away unless you give up. It's a promise of what he will share if we surrender. That is so hard to do, isn't it? 
It is hard in a world of having and hoarding to surrender to generosity. When the gods of having and hoarding are threatening us, it is really hard to give things away. It is hard in a world of threatening and posturing and self-promotion to surrender to humility. And Jesus says, I know how hard it is because I've had to surrender too. I surrendered to God for you. I know it's hard. And Jesus says, I surrendered to my Father so I could hear him say, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And I will do whatever it takes to give you the strength you need to persevere to the end when you can hear the Father say, the one who overcomes will have this inheritance. I will be his God and he will be my son. Intimidated people give up. Captivated people surrender. Don't miss Jesus this time of year and all the busyness and weariness and strain. Let your heart be captivated again by him so that you'll remember why it is you long to surrender to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our hearts are like wild animals that want to escape from the fence that we think is stealing our freedom and we want to run away from you and and you come after us and you capture us. And we wrestle and we fight, but you're patient to let us kick you, to let us squirm, to let us get all the muck of our rebellion on you and you take us back home. And you teach us that the fence isn't there to take freedom away. It's, it's a boundary surrounding us by your love. Capture our wild and stubborn hearts and help us to see your beauty again so that we will rest, never giving up, but always surrendering to you, we pray. In your name, amen.